So welcome, Dan. I really appreciate you taking some time with us. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. This movie, The Batman, obviously all Batman movies have a definite tone. This one in particular has a very physical, savage feel to it. And that obviously works way into the stylism of the visual effects. How is that influential in terms of laying down the look and feel of the visual effects and even keeping a consistency across the various vendors involved in delivering the effects? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, for us, for this film, Matt Reeves, our director, he had a very specific vision about how this Batman was going to be different from the other Batmans. And not to, we loved, we obviously loved the character. We loved the franchise and the history of it. And there's been some amazing films that have been made in that space. But we, Matt in particular, he wanted to make something that was more like a sort of gritty, noir detective thriller, like something from the 70s or 80s. So he was referencing those films as thematically, but also visually. And one of the big things that he, he wanted from the visual effects of the film was to deliver all the kind of exciting spectacle and action events that you expect in a Batman movie, but to ground it in a sort of gritty realism that's more in keeping with that sort of like 70s noir aesthetic. So for us in visual effects, that was the mandate was to still make things fun and exciting, but not to do anything that would distract from realism and heighten things to the point where it no longer felt credible or believable. Well, I got to say, for me, at least, it really did that. There were some fight scenes there that were just really hard to watch because Batman took such a pounding. You felt the weariness. It was not this superhero that just unrealistically bounces back. So I think that was achieved very well. You're right to pick up on that. The same way um, he gave that brief to visual effects, he was giving that to everybody. So Rob Alonzo, the stunt coordinator, they were talking about how to stage the action. And one of the things that Matt really wanted to do was not do a lot of quick cuts, not do a frenetic action scene, but to play uh, the wides for longer and to let the sort of tableaus play out so that it didn't feel like you were hiding behind tricky editing, but it felt like the characters were actually just brutally fighting. The way that you might see if you came across a fight in the street or something that it, it felt that kind of like real and uncomfortable. When it comes to visual effects, there are movies and then there are movies. And the Batman is at that level where it's just not possible for any one studio to really take the full brunt of all the visual effects work. So explain a little bit about how this gets divvied up. Like how do you decide which visual effects houses get which sequences? and how to keep visual consistency and those kinds of things. What does that look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. We had a complete script before we started looking at visual effects houses. So we had a pretty clear picture about what kinds of effects and assets and the things that we need to do. And we looked at a bunch of effects houses and we were really just trying to cast the house and the studios for their strengths and align them with the section of work in the film that would best suit their skill sets. So we knew we were going to be doing a lot of Gotham. We'd always planned to shoot a lot of photography in London and other cities. We ended up shooting in Chicago, Manhattan. We shot some reference in Brooklyn. We pulled a lot of reference from Toronto and from Detroit. And we shot in Glasgow as well. And Liverpool. Liverpool was a big place for us too. Mm. So a bunch of cities, a bunch of photography. But we needed to pull it all together and make it look like a consistent Gotham. But again, Matt wanted to make sure that it looked completely real. And but sometimes a thing in films where there's a lot of, you'll see a lot of cities that look pretty or that look, work fine for the storytelling, but you don't necessarily think that they were shot in a physical city. 
And, and so for us, that was critical in just finding a company that was prepared to embrace that kind of level of detail and realism as well. So the other thing was we knew there were going to be some scenes set in an unfinished skyscraper up in the skyline of Gotham. And Matt had planned to put the bat signal there and to let Gordon and Batman have these conversations up there where you saw the city and the surrounds. And, you know, we even talked about potentially, you know, shooting on top of a building or in real life, but for practical reasons, it just didn't make a lot of sense. So Greg Frazier had done some early work in the LED volume on the first season of Mandalorian. And he pitched this idea that there might be some scenes in the film where we could create all the visual effects extensions in prep and then put them on this LED screen and actually photograph the characters and the sets in front of the screens and potentially get the visual effects shots in camera. And we talked a lot about what he'd learned from that process and what the strengths were and what the limitations were. And we designed several of our sets around that framework. He worked closely with ILM and Stagecraft in setting up some of that work on Mandalorian. And so that was a natural fit for them to get involved in Gotham that way. And then that sort of extended into the wingsuit sequences and some of the other big Gotham shots. And then we had talked to Weta about doing a few different parts in the show. But where we ended up really focusing on was the Batmobile chase. And Andrew Langlands, who I'd worked with before on Planet of the Apes movies, came on as their supervisor. And Dennis Yu as well, who had worked with on some of the Apes films, who was the animation suit. Basically, what we decided to do was to shoot as much practically as we possibly could, even knowing that in many cases we, we weren't going to be able to keep the practical elements, that we would have to replace them because of issues with speed or safety or just the logistics of getting everything wet. You know, one of the key things for that sequence was Matt had this vision of a car chase on a freeway that is just flooded in torrential rain. And he'd imagined that these tractor trailers would start slipping and sliding and basically hydroplaning across the road. And that, that uncontrolled movement of this you know, giant mass would create this chaos that would allow us to show Batman's character in this sort of unrelenting charge. Nothing's going to stop him from hunting down the penguin and exacting his vengeance. In doing that, we were looking at different places where we might be able to execute that sequence. And there are a few different test tracks, like places where they were testing cars, or in many cases, they were decommissioned airfields. And most of the sequence was shot on about a mile of decommissioned airstrip. And the kind of usable, shootable space within that was actually only about a quarter mile, because it took a certain amount of time to get the vehicles up to speed and then to execute the choreography. And then you needed some space to run down as well. But even a quarter mile is a lot of space to try to have your rain machines and all your mm -hmm. lighting. And we had some limitations there in terms of how much water and how many vehicles, how much we could actually fill that space up. Even though we'd committed to photographing all this stuff, there was a lot of elements that weren't there that would need to be added later. And then just logistically um, getting the vehicles to make bigger impacts, to hit harder, to do things that the actual vehicles might not be fully capable of, that felt to visual effects as well. But I guess what I will say is the other key collaborator in that process was Dominic Tui and his special effects team. They ended up building actually four high-performance Batmobiles. They were like not just set pieces, but actual incredibly capable action vehicles. They're all built from scratch. They weren't like modified versions of another car. And they were set up like rally cars. They had uh, 
a drivetrain where you can switch between two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive at the push of the button on a steering column. And they're actually driven by ex-rally, British Rally Champion drivers. And Mark Higgins in particular, who was just incredible what he could do with that car. And each car was slightly different. They were all tailored for doing certain things. So we had pods, which is pretty common in action films these days. You have a set of steering controls that you can attach to the outside of the vehicle. So you can have your actor sitting in the driver's seat, and then you've got your stunt driver sitting in the pod, and they can drive the vehicle with precision and get it to do the things that you need it to do. But you can still have the actor in the driver's seat and following along with the movement of the wheel and do all the things that you need to do for camera, but still have the vehicle going through its paces and do it safely and precisely. So we had a couple of those. We had a vehicle that we'd stripped down so that it weighed as little as possible and they put a long throw suspension on it and reinforced the shock absorbers. It's set up just for jumping and it could jump off this ramp that they created through a wall of fire, take after take. It got about 12 feet in the air and it soared for almost 100 feet. And, and those shots, they're pretty incredible, just, just out of the camera. The shot where you see the Batmobile flying through the wall of fire, that's almost entirely in camera. We did a little bit of cleanup on the road and a little bit of tidying up of some bits of explosion debris and things. But for the most part, that's as it happened on set. So it was pretty incredible what his team was able to do. And it wasn't just the, the Batmobile course. They built all these rigs for the slipping and sliding tractor trailers. And so we had a pretty good foundation there. But again, it's one of these things where, despite how good the foundation was, because of the requirements of the shoot and the storytelling, we did end up replacing most of the content of those shots in order to get what you see in the final. Right. Um, and, you know, and then the last company that I should say the last major 3D work was done by Scanline. And they were a natural fit because of their background in doing so much water and fluid simulation. We had a, a sequence where the seawall of Gotham is effectively blown up. And Gotham ends up being flooded by seawater. And there's a whole section at the end as well where we're inside Gotham Square Garden Arena. And there's a group of snipers up in the rafters. And so that whole sequence is when Scanline took over and they did a bang up job of more traditional set extension. And we had a set on a blue screen that we shot all the stunt action on. And then they added the rest of the arena and the events down below. So it's kind of broke down. We had Crafty Apes did a lot of 2D work for us. Um, one of the things with this film, Matt Reeves, he's such a stickler for some precision in his shot design. A lot of the shots end up being kind of splits and retimes. We end up taking Gordon right. from one take and Batman from another take and splitting them together shots. So Crafty Apes did a bunch of that stuff for us too. Obviously a lot going on there. And now, as you mentioned, a lot of water effects, but also I imagine a lot of that was practical, especially the water on those car scenes. Did you have any electronic casualties? Because water and electronics typically don't mix real well. I was just curious <laughs> if you managed to keep that all under control. Yeah, I think most of the casualties were, they were kinetic casualties rather than aquatic casualties. They were, <laughs> okay. they were collisions. But it wasn't too bad. In terms of the practical stuff, we did have a ton of rain everywhere in, in Gotham in particular on the back lot, you know, Dom had water towers effectively all over that back lot. So we could turn on the rain everywhere. And as anyone who's watched the film would know, it's pretty much raining all the time. Yeah. And it's almost always night. So we spent a lot of time on those sets in the middle of the night in rain jackets, just trying to dodge the rain towers. But in terms of the Batmobile chase, because the spaces that we were covering were so vast, it was just really difficult to have that much water and that many towers available to cover that. So 
Dom had some really clever rigs that would do mist off the wheel wells and that would do mist off things that were attached to the vehicles that would spray water out in front of the car so that you'd get the water onto the windscreen as you were driving and you'd get the water from the wheel wells, but not necessarily the falling water. We studied a bunch of heavy rainstorms and what it looks like when you're driving on the freeway in a heavy rainstorm. And what was interesting was you didn't see the falling raindrops as much as you saw the effect of the vehicles and the tires in particular lifting the water off the road surface and then throwing it back up. So we leaned heavily into that. And then for those shots where you're outside the vehicles and you see the rain through the headlights and that kind of thing, that really ended up being mostly Anders' team adding that back in digitally. And it was actually a pretty tricky thing to do and execute in a way that looked like the photography. One of the things that Matt really leaned into on the sequence was hard mounts. And it's kind of true across the film. Like he really likes attaching the camera to the vehicle and then not operating it at all, just letting it see what it sees attached to the vehicle. And that, of course, introduces a lot of vibration into the camera. And a lot of that vibration is happening at a level where in a single frame, rather than seeing like a blurry streak, what you see is like a squiggle, like you actually get multiple turns. I, I assume you're still shooting at a higher frame rate than normal, right? To No, we were, for the most part, we were shooting at 24. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. There was, there were a few moments where we switched over into, into slow-mo, but into a higher frame rate. But this is another thing that's peculiar to the way Matt does his his action sequences and his storytelling in general like he likes to use slow motion i guess as an emotional device as something to indicate that you should get inside the head of the characters at a point of view experience but not so much as a device for showing more detail in activity right. it's like the opposite of maybe some of the previous batman movies or you know like any any action chase where you'll cut into an exciting moment and suddenly everything will slow down he tends to let it play until you're experiencing it as a character in the film. The chase is a great example where it's all going hard charging, super fast, hitting everything's sliding and smashing. And it's not until the penguin turns around you know, after he thinks he's blown up the Batmobile and he's yelling at the, his rearview mirror, like, I got you. And he looks over his shoulder and that's when he realizes that he hasn't got Batman, that the Batmobile is actually coming back at him. And that's the moment that it switches into slow motion. We hold on to that slow motion when Batman's approaching the vehicle as well, because you're experiencing it as Penguin at that point, and it's one of those oh my god moments. But it's not so much in the section where the cars are crashing and smashing, it all stays pretty fast. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the LED volume because we're in this interesting time in filmmaking where it has some aspects of being a fad, but I think really is something that we can all see is the future. Uh, but we're in this emerging period where we're riding the seat of our pants. There's the asset pipelines, the way of doing it, even the dynamic range of the LED walls themselves. These are things that are still evolving and still coming into being. What were your thoughts going into this in terms of using the LED volume? Tell me a little bit about the decision-making process in engaging the volume. Yeah, I guess I'll agree with you that it's certainly an amazing tool, and I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's a great tool for some things, but it's not necessarily the replacement for everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't solve all your problems. And we chose to use it in some places, and we chose not to use it in other places based on some of those limitations and strengths as well. Like I'll say like the thing I think it does incredibly well is provide backgrounds for scenes that have 
a high color contrast, but low value contrast. So like things like sunsets, it does really well. And the thing that's incredible about it too, is that it solves those massive logistical challenges where if you want to shoot a sunset for real, if you want to shoot a golden hour, it's just incredibly limiting in terms of your production schedule. You've only got a small window within which you can shoot all your shots. Whereas if you go on the volume, you never lose your light. You can call up your sunset scene and you can shoot there all day long. You can shoot there for a week. And that was one of the, the big strengths for us. We had a scene with Batman and Selena at sunset having a big emotional conversation. And that's the kind of thing that had we actually been on the top of a building and trying to shoot that at sunset, it would have been really difficult to get all of our shots in the time that we had. Um, and so I think for that kind of thing, it, it works well. It works well when there's not a lot of fast frenetic movement. We did start to find some things where there's certain issues with refresh and motion blur. If you're right. shooting an action sequence or having a fight in front of the screen, you're inviting trouble with motion blur and the sync of the refresh of the LEDs and fast movement in front of them. You know, as you say, the, the equipment, the tool sets are getting better and better. And so I think a lot of those issues, they're continuing to improve. But there were surprises for us as well, where because in many of our scenes, we had a, a tracked camera, which basically had a motion capture system installed in the volume, tracked the movement of the production camera, and then replicated that camera position in the rendering of the background. So everything stayed in alignment perspective wise. But we had a really funny discovery when the special effects team turned on the winches that lifted the elevator up and down. It caused some kind of interference with the motion capture system. And huh. our whole plane of the camera tracking got lost and wow. it made all the visuals on the screen kind of flip out upside down. And <laughs> suddenly everybody felt like they were standing on their heads. And it was really weird. And it took us a while to, first of all, even figure out what was going on, why that happened. And then to try to isolate the power system from the winches and the mocap system. It ended up even having them on separate generators. Like we, we were getting some kind of electromagnetic interference or something that was causing it to continue to flip out. That was with the fusion sensor stuff on the camera rather than the optical, I'm guessing. No, no, that was with uh, optical. That was with the... Um, with the optical was causing the problems. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow, wow. You know, they still rely on cables and networking and in some right. cases, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi stuff. It's not to really throw it all. So, Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I, know, I was just going to say, I think, I think it has a lot of strengths. We chose not to use it on the uh, third act sequence in the rafters with the snipers and... That had a lot to do with just the space that we needed to move through, the space that we needed for the cameras and the cranes to move around, but also all the stunt rigging. The beauty of the LED volume is that you can surround the actors in light, but when you surrounded them with these LED panels, you can't get cables and wiring back through from the rafters back into the actors. And right, so that, makes sense. that ended up being a logistical thing as much as anything else. And also you just have the issue that the lighting is not directional the way it is with practical stage lighting too. So that kind of limits some of what you can do. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Although on a traditional set, often with the lighting, you're doing things to try to soften the light. So you'll have a big 12K or something. And you'll yeah. put diffusion in front of it, and then you'll build like a giant eight-foot box around it out of duvetine, and then you put another layer of diffusion. Obviously not all the time. Sometimes you want hard light. But if, to me, it feels like a lot of the time you spend on set is trying to soften that light. And right. that's one of the beautiful things about the LED volumes. Greg Frazier, we'd call up Gotham. We'd set Gotham up at sunset. 
But then Greg would work with the stagecraft folks and he'd say, okay, it's looking good, but I need a little bit more of a soft, warm kick off of Batman's cowl. So make me an orange rectangle and put it over that, you know, point to a part on the screen. And Shemaine, who was the operator, would dial up on her iPad and she'd move a bright orange square over to one spot. And then Greg would say, okay, cool. Now can you make it twice as big and four times as tall? And so he was basically using it as a lighting tool, a soft light source that he had just the speed and the freedom with which he could create these shapes of light. He loved it. He's a big fan and advocate of it, not just for the realism of the environment, but also just as a really efficient lighting tool once you've got everything in place. What a lot of people, I think, forget is that photorealistic CG is just difficult to do, whether it's going to be in real time or not in real time. You still have to do all the prep for all the assets. It just happens ahead of the shoot day. Did you have some kind of unified pipeline? Obviously, you're using those city assets elsewhere in traditional VFX workflows. How did you get that in and out of Stagecraft? What does that whole asset pipeline look like on a show? Yeah. Yeah, Damien, you touched on like kind of one of the biggest reasons, I think, not to do LEDs, and that's that you just have to do all of your visual effects work, all your asset work in prep. And often that's a time when you're really compressed and it's really difficult to do all the work that you need to do in order to get the work to look good. And it's also a time when the director's attention is on so many different things. And so to really knuckle down and focus on like creating a full visual effects environment and then getting it to a finalable level in prep. It's a, it's a major challenge. And then you also have to have filmmakers that are willing to commit to that, that aren't going to change their mind and post and say, like, actually, like rather than being on the top of a skyscraper, maybe they should be in an underground cave or something. Once you put that stuff up in the volume, you've locked that lighting in. And especially if you've decided to not put any blue screen behind your characters, you're fully committed. And yeah. if you do change your mind down the road, and you end up having to rotate the characters off and replace all the backgrounds, it's going to end up looking worse than if you just would have shot it on a blue screen. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. And one of the things that you just have to get everybody's head around is it's not going to save us work in prep. It's actually going to create more work in prep. And we have to be willing to commit the resources and also just commit to what we're doing if we're going to go down this road, because once we do it, it's really difficult to fix. Yeah. Or really difficult to change later, I should say. How did that work with the Stagecraft system? Could they accept traditional assets or did you have to work really closely with ILM to make sure the assets worked with the stage? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were working mostly in Unreal Engine in our virtual art department. So right. our production designers, they might build the sets in Rhino. They might build them in SketchUp. They would go into the virtual art department who would ingest everything and create Unreal Engine assets out of it. And then those assets... The way that we did it on Vengeance and the way that ILM wanted to work on that, we ended up handing those assets over and they converted them for their real-time engine, you know, which is similar in many ways to Unreal, but is optimized for their stagecraft workflow. To be honest, like that was one of the areas that we had some challenges just because of the back and forth of our department making adjustments to the sets or shifting things around and then having to fold those changes back into assets on the stagecraft side that had already been started or laid out. And one of the things we've talked about in the future is just trying to make that a sandbox where everybody can continue to work and make improvements and adjustments without having to go through a rigorous throw it over the wall and hope that it turns out right. And if everybody didn't make changes, then it ends up being a big deal. I think that's one of the strengths about the um, Unreal Engine workflow that a lot of productions have kind of settled on. 
people do the same thing in Unity and some of the other engines as well. But I think on the shows I've worked on, there's enough of a mass of bodies that are using Unreal and using a single Perforce server. You can set the sandbox up so that everybody can work on assets. They can continue to improve them and then roll them back in. And as long as they're communicating well and working together, you can continue to get things better and better until you have to go to the stage. And right. We, uh, we have that kind of industry ubiquity as far as Unreal goes. It's a known entity. People understand how that perforce can work. It's still a little bit of an unusual workflow compared to traditional asset pipelines, but it, but it does yeah. work, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. And it's already set up. There's There are workflows for going through to render heads. And, and again, like they're not the only tool available. There's other ones out there, but there's enough of a like, sort of a momentum and a pipeline there that at least for right now, it seems to be the easiest place to set up a sandbox and let everybody play in it. We talked right at the beginning about the fact that this is a very intentionally grounded physical movie. And so one of the things that we do in visual effects quite often is to tighten up fight scenes and things like that. But in this case, I imagine you have to be very careful about those invisible effects, that they really are invisible, that we're not cheating physics too much. How did that go? I imagine that was a lot of what Weta was doing. Yeah, Weta did a lot of it, and Scanline did a little bit of it as well. And it was actually even trickier on this film than most because Matt did want everything to play out in these kind of wider tableaus and didn't want to cut around those moments. And he really wanted to feel like Rob Pattinson was the most skilled martial arts expert there ever was and that he was just brutal and that he was beating the shit out of people. And obviously, you're not hitting people for real. And there is a yeah. lot of manipulation that has to go in there to make all those connections work. But yeah, like you say, you're trying to keep it as seamless and invisible as possible. And then also really snappy and brutal, but not break the physics either. And every shot becomes its own little puzzle as well. You're like figuring how far can I rock a head back after a punch? How much recoil? Yeah. And you, you, it ends up being effectively like, like 2D animation on top of photography in a way. Were most of those things 2D tricks or did you end up having to resort to some 3D manipulation? It's a, yeah, it's a real mixture. There's a yeah. lot of 2D tricks. There's a lot of sweat spray and like additional elements that are added in. And then there's there's some places where there was some face replacement kind of stuff as well. Bit of a mix. Still, it definitely felt very cohesive and I can't really think of any time where I got pulled out thinking that was an interesting effect. It felt very grounded. So you guys did the job. Yeah, thanks. It's a great compliment to hear that there was nothing that stood out as like in your face visual effects. And I guess that's also a challenge for us as well is if we've done our job right, people don't actually know that we've done our job at all. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk and you guys are up for the awards too, right? Yeah. It's exciting. Some, uh, so, some really good work this year. Tough competition, but it's it's a pretty great privilege to be to be recognized as a contender in a category with all those other films. So if you guys haven't seen The Batman, obviously you need to check it out. And it's streaming currently. And a sequel slated? Yeah, yeah. Matt Reeves is hard at work on the script now. Oh, awesome. And uh, got, I think they even just announced a potential release date yesterday. So not far away. Very exciting. Thank you very Excellent. much. Thanks very much, Damien. Appreciate it.